Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast and the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast. This is a crossover podcast that we're doing today, and the reason for that is that the book that you're about to hear about is really just a, a meaningful, a substantive, um, and important um, enterprise. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast and the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast. This is a crossover podcast that we're doing today, and the reason for that is that the book that you're about to hear about is really just a, a meaningful, a substantive, um, an important, um, and a really great, really fantastic contribution to both of these fields simultaneously. And so we're bringing the podcast together for today. So I just finished talking with Sigrid Schmaltzer about this book. This is Red Revolution, Green Revolution, Scientific Farming in Socialist China. This came out with the University of Chicago Press in 2016. Now, the interview, as you may have seen, if you look at the duration online of the interview, is fairly extensive. And so I'm going to keep this introduction relatively short and basically just say this is a book that takes us very deeply into scientific farming, agriculture, um, the kind of uh, project of collective experimentation in the context of Maoist China and also post-socialist China. And what it does in taking us into this context in a really thoughtful way that's informed by all kinds of both innovative and innovatively read sources is it helps both flesh out um, conversations about some really key um, contemporary topics of debate and of interest in the field of science studies. And you'll hear about that in the moments to come. But it also gives us a way to try trouble to rethink and to relook at this really crucial period in the history of China from the perspective of you know, how we understand agriculture and science. And so with that, I will leave you to it. Um, Sigrid was exceptionally generous in spending the time to talk about the book, and I really do hope you have a chance to pick this up and read it, because as I've said, this is very much a meaningful contribution to both of these fields. And whether you're coming from the China field with no experience in STS or you're coming from the other direction, you'll be able to get something meaningful from it. Okay, so with that, um, enjoy the interview. As ever, thanks so much for listening and for your support of the channel, and I'll see you soon. I'm here today to talk with Sigrid Schmaltzer about her new book, Red Revolution, Green Revolution. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies and New Books in STS, Sigrid. I'm really excited to talk with you today. I'll say for listeners right off the bat, I loved this book. And one of the reasons that um, quite unusually we're talking for both channels is that I think it really substantively, beautifully, and really importantly speaks to and contributes to both of these fields. So thanks for making the time. Welcome to the podcast. And it's really a pleasure to have you here, Sigrid. Thank you so much, Carla. This is really an honor. I am a big admirer of what you do for both fields. And uh, so it's just great to be here and really delighted to talk to you. Great. 
So let's start as is traditional, actually, for both channels um, and talk a little bit about how you came to the field. And for this purpose, what brought you to the study of China? How did you decide to get involved in Chinese studies and Chinese history specifically? Um, well, actually, I think that this story probably speaks both to both channels also. Um, when I was in eighth grade um, and a kind of budding environmentalist and raised in an atheist household um, that, you know, taught to um, be a real believer in, in science um, and skeptical of, of religion, um, I discovered uh, the Tao Te Ching. Um, this you know Taoist classic, and um, I decided that China was it, you know, and China the Taoism was it, and China was it, and this um, you know was a you know a, a good atheist way of um, you know finding meaning in the world. You know, it gave me some kind of spiritual connection that didn't rely on on religion and placed nature at the center. And uh, so this seemed you know I I think like many other people uh, in the West who develop an interest in China. I um, came to China looking for uh, the solution to a problem that I found in my own, um, my own society and my own, my own world. Um, and so um, I, you know, having uh, decided that China was it, um, I then went forward, you know, in a way, perhaps, you know, typical of eighth graders or ninth graders um, of uh, just deciding that whatever was related to China was was uh, the best and the most relevant and the most worthy of study. And then it just really took on a life of its own at that point. And as I got more of a political consciousness as well, beyond environmentalism, I got very interested in Chinese socialism. And so that um, kind of took over from the um, ancient Chinese world as the, the focus of my interest. And uh, again, the kind of place um, I was looking to to help, uh, you know, provide the answer for what I thought was was all wrong about the way um, things were going um, in my own world and the assumptions that um, that I found in my own world. So that was, you know, it was maybe a result of prejudices and that kind of thing. And I hope I've grown, you know, over time. Um, and I'm still fascinated. Um, actually, I'm still fascinated in Taoism uh, by Taoism. I'm also still um very fascinated by um, socialism in China and the history of socialism in China. And I still have political commitments, but I have, um, you know, become, I think, more nuanced in my understanding and um, a little bit more aware of um, both both the um, potential opportunities and also the limitations involved when we look to another place uh, for inspiration. Um, so, yeah, that was that was kind of how I came to it. And then in, in college, I ended up combining, um, again, speaking to both tracks, um, combining those interests. Um, and I was a double major in East Asian studies and a program called Science and Society. This was at Wesleyan University. Um, so very much an STS and a science and technology studies and um, a Chinese studies combination uh, there as well. Great. Um, so the book that we're talking about today is Red Revolution, Green Revolution, as I mentioned, and it's subtitled Scientific Farming in Socialist China. Now, I'll just lay a little bit of super brief groundwork um, uh, before we kind of dive in. The goal of the book, as is laid out really nicely in the introduction, and I say really nicely, um, I mean really clearly and beautifully. This is a very well-written book. Listeners should know it's really a pleasure to read. Um, so I just want to highlight that. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. The goal of the book is, uh, in the words of the book, to bring into view China's unique intersection of red, 
and green revolutions. Here, socialist Chinese agricultural science is treated neither as a model nor as a cautionary tale. And both of these tendencies tend to um, kind of reverberate through a lot of the existing literature and historiography of this subject. Instead, Chinese agricultural science is considered as it helps, in the words of the book, to challenge dominant assumptions about what constitutes science, how science relates to politics, who counts as a scientific authority, and how agriculture should be organized or transformed. So it's simultaneously very, um, I think, very carefully and thoughtfully focused on a very particular case study, but also speaks to broader resonances of that case study, um, both within China and well beyond. So Sigrid, how did you come to focus on this particular topic? Um, given your trajectory, what brought you here and what brought you to a book-length project here? Um, yeah, well, I think in, as you know, historians might say, um, it, the answer is somewhat overdetermined because I find there's so many reasons. You know, it's like kind of everything was pushing me toward this topic. It seems um, years and years ago, when I was still a graduate student, one of my advisors, Joe Asherick, mentioned that he thought that those of us interested in the history of science and the PRC should really think about why it was that so many youth growing up in the Mao era had this passion for science. You know, so even as, you know, people of their parents' generations were um, undergoing pretty serious uh, political consequences for their involvement in academia, including in the sciences, that they really developed this sense that science was this very noble um, calling. Um, and he thought this was worthy of investigation. So I had that kind of filed away. Um, and then when I um, had finished with my first book, which was um, called The People's Peking Man, and really looked at the um at the way the story of human evolution was told over the course of the 20th century and the political context for that. I, that In that book, I was very interested to pursue what um, had happened in, in socialist era China, which was that um, in addition to the more common uh, uh, project, uh, a top-down project in which political and, and intellectual elites seek to educate the broad masses in scientific knowledge because they're so ignorant. In addition to that, which definitely existed as a paradigm in socialist era China, there was also this, I thought, much more interesting, more unusual, far more radical idea that people on the ground, the masses, so-called masses themselves, um, could should um, and did participate actively in the production of scientific knowledge. And this was called mass science. And I was just fascinated by this and really wanted to pursue, you know, how this worked. And what I, you know, learned in that first book was that it really did not live up to uh, what I thought, you know, what I agreed was the potential of this idea. I just didn't see people taking it nearly as seriously um, in reality um, as I had hoped from from the rhetoric uh, of the time. And so I thought, well, if it didn't, if it wasn't true in paleoanthropology, perhaps it was true in uh, some other some other field. Um, and my father at that time, I remember, also encouraged me to think about meteorology, you know, the um, the study of weather and that, you know, this was an area where he imagined, you know, there might be um, some kind of, you know, uh, kind of more sincere or more um, uh, productive work done in mobilizing popular knowledge, right, about the weather and, you know, its, its consequences for agriculture. So we have this, you know, this piece um, about youth, and we have this piece about agriculture. Um, I, I 
when I started, um, you know, kind of scouting for a project on youth, I thought actually originally I might look at youth participation in earthquake prediction. And I even went so far, you know, I gathered a bunch of materials on this and I quickly discovered that, you know, this was really not for me. I'm much more um, tuned into the biological sciences and, um, and I also wasn't finding as much in the areas that I was, was looking in. And fortunately for me, I didn't go down that route because Fatih Fan, um, a wonderful historian, of science, uh, who I respect greatly, has been doing really good work on that. Um, and so I'm, I'm glad um, that he's doing that. And, and I found this other path. But I would say the final thing that, that got me to this um, project is really about living in a place where there's a lot of very interesting agriculture going on, um, a lot of interesting local agriculture, a lot of very um, innovative and self-consciously radical approaches uh, to agriculture. Some of the activists who I work you know, with or encounter um, and who to me seem to be doing the most interesting work are working in agriculture. And I have this profound desire to be relevant um, and especially relevant to the people who I kind of most want to hang out with. So I, um, I wanted to write a book that um, some of these folks who I really respect locally would read. And if I gave a talk locally, they'd show up for, and that's been happening. I've been able to do um, these local talks and um, local workshops even looking at primary sources with people who have no particular um, relationship to China. And, and they're into it because they're into agriculture and they're into in, uh, thinking about the intersections between political change and um, technical agricultural change. And so all of those things kind of came together to really make me think that um, agricultural science in the Mao era should be my, my next project. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, so as we get it, like, kind of further into the book, let's dive right in. Scientific, uh, you, you make the point early in the introduction that what we're going to call, um, what the book calls scientific farming, was embraced in China as a means to radically transform society. And from the very early stages of the book, the book is asking us, uh, I think really usefully and productively, to kind of rethink and to trouble how we might assume the relationship of science and politics to look. So the book argues, among other things, that we can't understand Mao-era China in terms of struggles between pre, uh, sort of pro-science and anti-science factions. That's much too simplistic, right? And, and the book shows that while um, what the book calls technocrats and radicals had very different ideas about how science should work, both, um, in the words of the book, embraced science as a core value. The book is also arguing um, various things relating to the relationship between science and politics under Mao and beyond. So for you, as a way of maybe kind of getting us started and diving right into the book, um, for you, what is perhaps um, most important or among the most important things that you'd like your readers to understand about how the book is um, kind of questioning or troubling these assumptions about the relationship between science and politics? Um, yeah, thank you for that question, because this is really um, probably the thing that's most important uh, to me of, of everything in terms of the uh, of what I was trying to do with this book. And I think, you know, I'm not alone um, by any means in um, in questioning whether the Mao era was or and Maoists in the Mao era were really anti-science. I think a number of people um, are doing that now um, and doing it from a, a variety of directions. Um, I think that um, what I'm arguing here is still um, 
not necessarily it's not necessarily unique, but it's different from the way some other people are approaching this because I'm I'm not only saying that um that Mao and his supporters were deeply uh committed to science, um, but I'm also um wanting to say that um, their particularly political, um, explicitly political approach uh, to science um, did not make it illegitimate. Um, And this is something I'm uh, really drawing on uh, my background in science and technology studies, um, f- you know, for me, one of the most important um, lessons to be learned from that literature is that the notion that science is or should be um, or must be divorced from the political context in order for it to be legitimate science is just not really tenable when we, you know, look at the historical record or, or what what scientists um, are actually doing. Um, but rather that, you know, science always um, happens in a political context. It's enmeshed in political struggles, and it, you know, even the meaning of science uh, is derived from within those political contexts. So even, you know, what we think science is, is a part of a um, a specific historical moment that uh, is uh, political and social and cultural and economic in very specific, uh, specific ways. So, um, so what I'm arguing here is that the uh, that not only that Mao and, and his followers weren't anti-science, but also that um, that that there's something to be learned uh, from the uh, from socialist era China's insistence that science be seen in uh, politically. Um, explicit ways um, and the insistence that science and technology not be imagined to be apolitical um, and that it not and that um, technological solutions not be imagined to be um, possible outside of real social and political transformation. This is something that I think we um, can actually benefit from um, from understanding uh, the, the Chinese history. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And um, the book in doing this and in doing this kind of work um, is really, really thoughtful about the kinds of sources that it brings to bear in telling the story. And so we'll talk about this as we get into the specific chapters rather than um, talking too much about it right now. I just want to mark for listeners and kind of lay the groundwork here that um, the book and and in the introduction, I think you really take this on, um, at least in part, is telling this story with the aid of a really thoughtful and innovative reflection on on and use of propaganda sources, interviews. Um, you you uh, reference a bunch of interviews uh, that are mostly conducted, I think, in multiple locations in Guangxi in 2012, and we'll talk about that throughout the book, but also films, some really, really interesting kind of memoir and fiction pieces, and we'll talk about um, at least a couple of those as we uh, move on through the book. So let's get to the first chapter. Chapter one offers an introduction um, to the important aspects of state policy and ideology that directly impacted agricultural science. So this is going to, again, lay the foundation for us as we move into the more specific case studies later on in the chapters. 
Okay. Now, the chapter introduces a really important binary that's going to continue to recur throughout the rest of the book and really kind of shape some of the arguments of the book. This is the binary of Tu and Yang. Um, so for listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book, can you um, talk a little bit about what you take to be the nature of and um, kind of the most important aspects of this binary for us to understand in order to understand um, how to kind of trace this throughout the book and, and what you think is most important about it. Great. Thank you. And I realize as you asked that, that maybe um, if I could back up one step and talk about the binary in the title as oh, well, because course. I think I haven't, I haven't done that yet. And sure. that will help to set up the um, discussion of the binary two and young um, as well. So the, you know, the reason that I um, called the book Red Revolution, Green Revolution was because I feel like this, um, this binary captures uh, the kind of dilemma um, between, uh, you know, how, do you solve problems uh, through political solutions, right, through revolution, um, uh, you know, in the, um, in the political and social sense, which um, is designated with this red revolution concept, um, or through technological change, um, which is represented by the term green revolution. Mm-hmm. And this was something that I, you know, stumbled on. Actually, I think I first encountered this on Wikipedia. Um, so just a, a little shout out to, and, uh, you know, Acknowledgement that um, that uh, scholars to benefit from uh, from Wikipedia and um, and then of course I you know I tracked it back and you know found it in the sources but this. Um, term red uh, green revolution was coined by um, in 1968 by the then director of uh, uh, um, USAID specifically in contrast with red revolution so the idea was kind of from the outset that the green revolution um, these kind of this transformation of uh, the introduction of hybrid varieties um, of grains that would be um, able to uh, harness the benefits of large um, quantities of chemical fertilizers um, and also would benefit from um, inputs of chemical insecticides um, that by introducing these technological changes to agriculture this would allow um, kind of poor farmers around the world to improve their standards of living through this very technical means. And it would prevent them from kind of resorting to political revolution um, and kind of then thus spreading red revolution around the planet. So it's very much a geopolitical kind of strategy on the part of um, U.S. Cold War um, agents. Um, and so this this sense, I you know, I, at, once I figured that out, I kind of realized, you know, that, that this seems to be you know, this this binary that's very much um, at the heart uh, of this history is this kind of tension between and, and the kind of question of like, what is the relationship between political change um, and political commitment uh, on the one hand and um, technological change and scientific knowledge on the other hand. So this is this is kind of where, um, you know, where the title comes from. And then that maps onto and so there are a bunch of binaries that happen um, in the book. Um, and, it, uh, you know, I, I see the Tu and Yang um, binary to be um, this is the, you know, the Tu and Yang binary is something that comes actually out of the sources, the Red Revolution. Green Revolution binary. These are analytical category. That's an analytical category for me. Um, but the Tu and Young um, binary is something that comes out of the sources, and it's a um, 
it's a way of talking about knowledge um, and scientific knowledge in particular uh, that really comes out of the revolutionary um, uh, base area of, of Yan'an um, during so during the the revolutionary period in the um, 1930s and 40s. Um, and the the basic idea here is that Yang represents foreign knowledge and elite knowledge, um, knowledge that kind of comes from um, abroad, but specifically from um, kind of elite professional Western um, institutions and people who have studied there. Um, so modern science kind of, uh, stand, Yang stands in for him, mod, what we think of as modern professional science. And Tu um, is the kind of contrasting term, and this uh, refers to a kind of constellation. It has a constellation of, of meanings, um, earthy, uh, native, so kind of more nativist Chinese as opposed to foreign, um, uh, uh, mass-based, peasant-based. Um, so it's a, you know, a sense that there's a kind of knowledge um, that that people have in China and particularly peasants have uh, in China that is to be contrasted with this kind of ivory tower knowledge that um, that is uh, called the um, young knowledge. Uh, and so I see this, you know, this binary operating um you know, in really important ways over the course of the period uh, that I'm looking at. Um, and uh, it, um, you know, the official policy um, was to bring these two things together, right? That, um, and it, it maps onto other binaries as well, such as theory and practice, um, such as red and expert, um, so that such that tool, you know, maps onto practice, it maps onto red, it maps onto red revolution, um, whereas young um, maps onto theory and uh, to expert and and this kind of thing. And so uh, what I what I see is um this um, this binary operating. So the, the official policy is to bring these two things together. They're supposed to act in tandem, right? Um, that uh, it's things are going to work best for China if um, China can tap both its um, strength in uh, you know the expert modern technical expertise derived from uh, institutions, um, you know, colleges and universities and people who have been trained abroad and Soviet experts in the beginning in the 1950s coming in and this kind of thing. That absolutely we need to tap this knowledge, this expertise, um, but that also um, for I, think I would say both political reasons and um, you know intellectual reasons, it was important not to just rely on that, but rather to really insist that it work. Um, harnessed together with knowledge that was rooted in, um, you know, very much in the Chinese soil. Tu is literally soil, right? So it's um, it's knowledge that is um, legitimately Chinese, legitimately peasant, right, because of the political commitments of the Chinese Communist Revolution, um, and, you know, had legitimacy even in the kind of anti-intellectual um, uh, moments or, you know, periods um, of the of the PRC. And so uh, bringing these two things together was official policy, but at different times you see kind of emphasis and different people emphasize different, um, the 
polls differently. And for the radicals in particular, you know, the tendency was to, um, you know, insist on the primacy of two. You know, it was never politically dangerous to be two two, but it was um, often politically quite dangerous to be associated with the kind of foreign, um, you know, slash um, ivory tower uh, uh, poll, which was the young poll. And so in the book, um, you know, it, it, it plays out in different ways um, in, um, you know, the chapter, there are a couple chapters on, um, on two scientists. And for that, this plays out for them in terms of like how, you know, how do they balance these, right? Because they need to demonstrate both that they are young enough, that they have the kind of um, intellectual credentials, the scientific credentials to, to claim um, scientific knowledge, but also the political credentials of being down to earth, of being um, working shoulder to shoulder with peasants, of, you know, um, not being too associated with the foreign and, and the, um, you know, the overly elite. Um, and it plays out again um, in the, um, especially I think in the chapters on uh, educated youth, because educated youth faced this dilemma um, very powerfully um, of how, you know, how to combine, I mean, they were educated youth, they were supposed to have education, and yet that very education uh, made them politically suspect in some ways. Um, and they had to, um, in many ways, um, demonstrate that they were not just ruled by this, uh, you know, what they had learned in school, the school learning kind of thing, but rather that they were also um, learning uh, from the peasants in the countryside and through their own uh, uh, practice in the fields and this kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, that's right. And um, so there are so many things we could talk about with regard to these two particular scientists that um, make up the foci of chapter two and chapter three. We won't have time to get into that in any detail purely because um, I want to make sure that we get to some of the other stuff in the book, but I just want to mark for listeners here who are particularly interested in some of these issues um, from the STS side in particular, chapter one takes this binary um, and sort of fleshes out this idea of agricultural science and really interestingly relates it to some uh, really important debates and concepts within the field of science studies, the idea of a colonial epistemology and uh, the yeah, the question of uh, decolonizing science. It relates this binary to um, ways of thinking about standpoint epistemology and also helps us understand how certain um, cases and certain areas were taken as models in this context. And so all of these are really, really central issues and questions in STS. So listeners coming from that side of things might uh, find particular areas of interest in chapter one. Now, chapters two and three, um, as you mentioned, and again, just to mark this for listeners, take us into two major cases of two scientists who in very different ways were navigating and negotiating this too young um, binary. Um, and it's really, really interesting. And if we had another hour, I would want to ask you like a million questions about this chapter. But I'll just say um, sort of chapter two focuses on uh, Pooja Long. Uh, he's someone who received his PhD in entomology at University of Minnesota in 1949. He spends his career studying and practicing the biological control of insect pests. He does interesting things with ducks. Um, he works at the sort of Dasha or Big Sand Commune in Guangdong, which is a really interesting space that we might talk a little bit about. Um, and this chapter 
not only introduces sort of the ways that he navigates this binary, but also talks about the particular ways that um, in his case, being Tu is actually a transnational kind of a thing, which is interesting. Right? Um, then the next chapter takes us into a very different example, the case of Yuan, uh, Yuan Longping, um, who interestingly differs from the case of Pu, and in particular, he becomes known as the father of hybrid rice. But one of the things that's really interesting here is the way that his story is taken up and narrativized, um, right? And sort of be, he becomes um, this focus of a historical narrative um, that really creates him and his legacy as a scientist in super interesting ways. And so there are interesting things in that chapter, chapter three, as well about um, sort of how his case relates to a broader context of um, STS conversations about Lysenkoism and its histories. Um, there's an interesting film um, that comes up in this uh, conversation. And so um, for listeners who are particularly interested in rice science, um, in film as a source for this, in uh, sort of the ideas of Lysenkoism, etc., Chapter 3 is a really, really interesting um, case study for this and many other reasons. Okay. So let's get into four and five entirely because of time, okay. not, not because um, not because I wouldn't love to talk with you uh, again for another hour about either one of these people. Okay, so after going through these individual case studies, chapter four and five turn from the experiences of these individuals to consider the experiences of people in rural communities. Okay, now it shows, or these chapters show, that the active cooperation of rural people was really crucial for this state. And among other things, these chapters are looking at what's called, or what you call here, the Rural Scientific Experiment Movement, which simultaneously helped the state, in the words of the book, push through certain desired changes while avoiding responsibility for material assistance, and also, also in the words of the book, provided local communities with tools of resistance. This is a super interesting case. So first off, Sigrid, um, and I know we're kind of bouncing through, right? We're jumping across time and space here. For me. Um, <laughs> this idea of the rural scientific experiment movement. Mm -hmm. um, what is that? Um, what's important for us to understand about that? And what constitutes an experiment um, for this uh, purpose? Can you just talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So um, this is, you know, there's in a fairly often quoted um, uh, quotation from Chairman Mao from 1963, he called on people to advance um, the three great um, revolutionary movements. And these were, um, first of all, the um, movement for, you know, class struggle was number one. And this is, you know, very well um, discussed and, and understood in the in the China field, right? We talk about class struggle a lot. Um, second one was the struggle for production, also, you know, very um, frequently talked about. And the third one, which we just haven't talked about very much, um, was the great revolu revolutionary movement for scientific experiment. Um, so the scientific experiment was um, put right alongside the two big ones, right, class struggle and the struggle for production in terms of what was going to allow uh, socialist China to move forward and build a robust economy and stay true to its revolutionary vision. So this um, great revolutionary movement for scientific experiment um, was, you know, in some ways it was launched in this, you know, um, mid-1960s uh, period. And um, it was especially um, significant um, and mostly significant in the realm of agriculture. So in the mid-1960s and building on um, precedence and during the Great Leap Forward. It wasn't invented in the 1960s, but it took on a, a kind of a distinctive shape um, in the mid-1960s. Um, 
there was this movement to create scientific experiment groups in the countryside. And these were um, uh, organized on what was called a three-in-one basis, so combining three. And this gets back to what you were saying before about standpoint epistemology. I'm glad you reminded me of this because this is another thing that um, I have found very interesting in this history. So these three-in-one experiment groups uh, combined, um, ideally, old peasants, um, were the first category. The second category was educated youth, um, which were sometimes swapped out for technicians if there were, in fact, enough technicians in a given place to um, m- allow that to happen. Um, and thirdly, um, political cadres. And the idea here, um, so, you know, this, this, this idea of the standpoint epistemology um, is the idea that people produce knowledge and make contributions to knowledge based on um, their social position, right? So that people People who are peasants are going to know the world in a different way from people who are, you know, ivory tower scientists. Um, and the idea here um, with this kind of com- combined standpoint epistemology um, is that knowledge would be much stronger, much better, more uh, politically reliable as well as intellectually reliable if it was produced by uh, groups of people who represented these three um, key areas of, of society such that old peasants would contribute their um, kind of earthy experience in production um, and educated youth or technicians would be contributing their knowledge of modern science and political cadres would be contributing their understanding of the correct political line. Uh, And that this was the way in which uh, really good um, politically and scientifically reliable knowledge could be produced. So this is, this is what I see as a kind of the heart of this, um, this scientific rural scientific experiment movement. Great. Thank you. Um, So one of the things that these two chapters do, kind of taken together, chapter four and chapter five, um, is they give us some examples of how some of these um, particular kinds of people were valued or devalued, were understood. I mean, and interestingly, were remembered um, in the context of interviews that you did with people who were looking back at uh, on this period. And so those kinds of people included uh, sort of the idea of peasants. Um, chapter four looks at not only the construction of the, the idea of a peasant, but also looks at the dual view of and the dual memory of peasants as both experienced and backward. And so it takes us into the construction of a kind of identity um, of an, as an old peasant, as somebody who was kind of a particular um, expert in traditional knowledge. And it kind of relates this to ideas, again, of broader relevance, I think, to um, the STS community and to global history when we think about how to understand notions of native knowledge and native expertise. Um, so really, really interesting case there. Um, and it also talks a little bit about how girls and women f- uh, fit into this story. And we'll talk a little bit about that um, in the kind of chapter to come. Chapter five considers many of the same issues, but takes the perspective of, um, or looks at the perspectives of local political cadres and agricultural technicians. And both of these groups of people were bound to these kind of competing or um, competing forces or competing entities that existed in tension, right? So they're bound both to state mandates from above and to, in the words of the the book, the realities of the rural communities that they served. Now, chapter five really interestingly takes us into um, the ways that notions of self-reliance played out in this context, both as a kind of responsibility, but also as a, a form of or a space of local resistance. 
And one of the moments that I love in the book is when you are invoking an interview with somebody who um, was talking about the idea of self-reliance and local resistance and forms of resistance and said, we were not allowed to do agriculture. We could only transform it. We couldn't do it, right? Kind of lamenting um, this sort of like constant uh, pressure from above saying, okay, now change everything and do this. Now change everything and do that. Well, can't we just do our jobs? You know, why do we have to constantly be uh, transforming everything at the same time as we're trying to do it? Okay, so here's the question this raises for me. Because um, your source base throughout the book, but especially in these chapters, so interestingly includes these really fascinating moments from interviews. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that like for you in especially perhaps in the context of this moment in the book or these moments on this sort of central pair of chapters were there any interview experiences that you had that particularly stand out for you as being especially surprising or memorable anything that you'd like to to share along those lines Oh, there were so many. Yeah. I mean, the interviews are in many ways the most fun part. I mean, they're problematic in all sorts of ways, but all sources are problematic. And um, kind of trying to grapple with how much any interview is telling you about um, the uh, past, you know, even if you're talking about the past, but how much is it telling you about the past and how much is it telling you about what the person you're interviewing is experiencing right now or, you know, in the past week or something um, is, I think, one of the most um, most exciting, I mean, most difficult, but most exciting parts of um, of, of uh, using interviews for uh, for a historical project, and the one that I think about all the time, and I I kind of I very transparently I um, ex- explain this in the book because I wanted to make sure that it um, it came across um, in its multiple layers uh, was when um, somebody I was interviewing was talking about how uh, important it was uh, during the Cultural Revolution um, for the agricultural technicians and the the um, members of local communities to share food, you know, and that the, this kind of the agricultural technicians would go into a community and the um, people would uh, would get would uh, would give food or would treat them to a dinner or something like that. And um, and he emphasized this and. Uh, as he emphasized it, he said, just like we were treated last night, you know, at this banquet, you know, kind of referencing the experience that we were having traveling around um, and, uh, you know, um, eating these these banquets um, and kind of recognizing the importance of those social interactions for the relationships that were uh, were built um, in the past. And the, the way that these things resonated for me, I just thought was uh, was really telling and really important, you know, that what I was hearing from him was definitely being influenced by our current experience, but that didn't, um, for me, undermine the reliability of this. It didn't, for me, say, okay, well, he's just, you know, remembering this because we happen to have this experience, but rather that there is this resonance between past and present, that history is really a writing of the past that is always should be conscious of its uh, relevance in the present. So that was a that was a particularly striking moment for me. Another one came um, in a, another one of these lunches, you know, that um, so often our our conversations, um, you know, really took off during lunch, but there was a a moment where, um, our host, uh, came stood up and toasted, um, 
me and this um, uh, colleague, uh, Cao Xingxue, who I talk about quite a bit in the in the book, um, as being um, Tu and Yang together because of being native and, and foreign. And this um, and this was somebody who I had not been telling, oh, I'm really fascinated by this Tu and Yang, and you know, this is going to be the frame for my whole book. I hadn't said that, you know, um, but that that this came up, and again, it you know, it spoke to me of some of the continuities here and some of the ways in which the past is still very much um, informing um, the present uh, in terms of thinking about what knowledge is, um, the relationship between China and um, foreign places, the relationship between peasants and elites, all of these things are um, are still so much informed, I think, by the Mao era, often in very unconscious ways, but um, um, but then also are you know, the um, the way we think about the past is also, of course, um, shaped by our present concerns um, and our, our uh, present hopes uh, for the future. Great. Thank you so much. Um, and for listeners, uh, before we move on, I'll also mark that this chapter, um, I, I hear a lot lately um, from people who are particularly inspired by the work of James C. Scott, um, mm-hmm. and in particular, um, sort of recent work or classic work. And so for listeners who are particularly interested in really interesting ways of engaging James C. Scott's work, chapter five kind of takes uh, seeing like a state as inspiration and does um, a whole bunch of interesting things with it. So there's a lot in that chapter that speaks to the those particular kinds of historical interests. So as we move to um, the last two chapters before the epilogue, chapters six and seven, we move to a pair of chapters that look at the experiences of a group of people who you've actually um, mentioned a little bit earlier. These are experiences of educated youth. They, in the words of the book, participated in vast numbers in Socialist China's rural scientific experiment movement, the scientific experiment movement that we've just talked about a little while ago. Now, the chapter, um, chapter six, in particular, but I actually really both chapters, um, they look at both the experiences of urban educated youth who were sent down um, to the countryside. And there's a lot more, um, from what I understand, work on that group of educated youth. And they also look at um, the far greater number of rural educated youth who returned to the villages after graduating from urban schools. So there's lots of different kinds of educated youth who were treated in these chapters. Chapter six looks at what you call the late Feng paradox. In this paradox, youth were called upon both and like simultaneously to be revolutionary heroes and to be, as the book um, puts it, mere bolts in the revolutionary machine. So how do you kind of navigate that, right? At the same time, being a hero and being a hero for not being anyone very special at all, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so for you, um, can you talk about this Lei Feng paradox and how Maybe what are some of the most important ways that you see this shaping the experiences um, of the educated youth that you were looking at in the context of this chapter? Well, I think, you know, in some ways, this this is in some ways my answer to the question that Joe Escherich asked me um, or encouraged me to explore um, all those years ago, saying, you know, what was it about science that was so attractive to so many youth? I mean, he, you know, just knew from anecdotal evidence, right, that it really was. And we see this um, all over the place. And I, you know, I think my answer to that question is that science um, could be both 
into, I mean, it was intellectual. It was a way for for youth who had some education and who really valued that education and wanted to be able to use it and apply it um, to to celebrate that education. You know, so science involves being educated, and so it was um, kind of intellectually satisfying in that way. And it also, unlike. Um, the humanities, science could also be presented as um, not just bookish, not just ivory tower, but really kind of gritty and daring. Um, and so, you know, in some some areas of science, it was easier to portray than others. So, you know, geology um you know, uh, could be portrayed as really gritty and daring because people had to, you know, traverse difficult territory and this kind of thing in, in search of mineral deposits and, and what have you. So this could be presented as, as gritty uh, and daring. In agriculture, um, it might be a little bit less obvious, but the idea that, um, well, for one thing, in, in very material ways, you know, people would emphasize how they would stay out, you know, all day and all night. They would brave the elements. They would get sick, you know, going out in the rain and the cold in order to protect their um, plants or to study the, um, you know, count the bugs and so thereby, you know, um, uh, participate in plant protection. Um, there, there are accounts of youth um, uh, um, sickening themselves with pesticides and kind of talking bravely about how they didn't stop, even though they were getting really sick from from using these pesticides. So ways of uh, portraying agricultural sciences uh, as gritty and daring um, in that sense, and then also in the sense of encountering failure all the time. And so youth were um, kind of, you know, they were encouraged to really see what they were doing as honest-to-goodness experiments. Um, And the truth is, experiments fail all the time. And so they had to kind of develop this stiff upper lip and um, be willing to, you know, face failure courageously and recognize that, um, you know, science is a winding road and that failure Failure is the uh, mother of success and all of this kind of thing. And so, you know, this, I, you know, I, I, I think that science served for a lot of youth as a way of fulfilling both the um, kind of uh, intellectual, their intellectual aspirations, but doing so in a way that um, was potentially more politically legitimate um, than, for example, you know, studying philosophy or studying art or literature, which was um, politically far, far more questionable. And as to, you know, the, you know, the question of kind of how they, um, you know, become heroes without falling into the trap of kind of, um, you know, bourgeois name-seeking, fame-seeking um, fallacies. Um, I think this this also was was central um, central to the paradox, and and um, you just see the um, you see it in the propaganda, and you also see it um, in uh, at least one of the diaries that I can remember. Maybe there were more, but one one sticks out in my mind of the, the diary of a. Uh, sent down youth who was just, you know, he was really concerned about this, really concerned that he, um, not just that he not um, appear this way to others, but that he, in fact, really was not himself um, falling into some tendency to um, enjoy science for his own kind of self-aggrandizing reasons, but really was fully committed to this kind of um, selfless application of his education for the for the benefit of the people. And so, so you see this a lot in the educated youth um, 
chapters. I think this also um, is an important theme back in the Yuanlongping um, chapter as well, because in that chapter, I what I try to do is show how the story of the invention of hybrid rice looks so different when we look at the Mao era sources compared with when we look at the post Mao sources. And the truth is, if you're writing, you know, kind of a history of Yuanlongping himself, the Mao era sources are almost useless because they hardly ever talk about him because science was not supposed to be something that one guy did, right? And it's really in the post-mass sources when, um, when you know, individual celebrating individuals and individual achievements and individual um, intellectual achievements in particular um, became not only okay, but, you know, kind of the way to write, um, write about science. That's when we see these hagiographies of Yuan Longping uh, appear. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that comes up in these um, chapters that I have to ask you about, because it's another one of my absolute favorite moments in the book, um, is a source that comes up actually a couple of times. And this is the second handshake. Um, this is a hand copied, unpublished novel um, that receives a lot of attention in chapter six, but it also comes up elsewhere. Um, and it's fascinating. Um, and I would just love it if you could talk about that source um, and sort of uh, maybe introduce what you what you see as uh, perhaps something that's most important uh, about this source for understanding the phenomena that we've been just talking about. Yeah, I mean, I have to admit that I don't do, and I think, you know, uh, probably, you know, I'm sure other people can do it much better than I can, um, and certainly should do it much more than I did. Um, I don't use the, like, I don't delve into that source itself so much as use its very existence and the context of its circulation um, and the um, kind of experience of the original author and some of the, you know, other people who uh, who passed it around um, as evidence. And so, you know, basically what, what this source was, this is an um, underground circulated novel um, of which there were, you know, quite a few during the Cultural Revolution. Um, they, you know, were, you know, written by somebody and then um, passed around and hand copied, you know, people actually hand copying these things and circulating them. And, um, you know, often with content that, um, you know, would be really problematic politically. Um, In this case, um, there were, um, you know, political problems because it... um, you know, seemed to um, to celebrate Joe and Lai a little too much. So that was one you know political problem uh, with it. Um, it also had quite a um, quite some very racy sections apparently, and and you know a lot of this stuff also would get added in by people. You know, readers themselves would, as they're hand copying, would would um, potentially add um, add details and this kind I of thing. I love that. I just love <laughs> the idea of this hand copied book with these racy scenes getting passed around, and like as you would copy it, maybe you would add your own racy. I just love everything about this source. You know, you know where it comes up too is in Red Azalea, this um, uh, um, this uh, um, semi autobiographical um, uh, novel um, um, describing a sent down. youth, a woman, um, and um, the, she and her lover, another woman, another sent down um, youth, um, exchanged this book as well. So you, you, it, it pops up in these, you know, these various um, places. And so I had encountered it before, but what I think what it's doing for me here, you know, the way the, way, the evidence that 
it um, provides for my book is really to kind of underscore how um, how much youth were embracing science and embracing many in many ways the kind of vision of science that the state itself was encouraging. So science as patriotic, the scientists in this, um, so the, the book, I should say, if I failed to say this, the protagonists in the book are scientists and they are scientists who um, went and, uh, you know, worked uh, um, on the atom bomb in the U.S. and the, the woman who did this returns and, um, the, you know, the, but it, because she's patriotic and, you know, um, so this, there's this patri- sense of science as patriotism and science as heroism. Um, and uh, my, you know, what, where, what I take from this is that youth, even in their um, illicit, you know, hand copied, um, politically um, very risky um, uh, literature, they are um, in some ways, in some ways, perhaps challenging um, the state's perspective on science, but I think in more significant ways, really reinforcing it. I think it, it's one of these moments where we really see um, how much um, youth embraced um Partly, perhaps, because of being influenced, but partly, I think, because it was also, you know, a vision that they that they shared—a a vision of science as revolutionary and exciting and patriotic and daring and dangerous—and uh, um, yeah, so that, that's 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 the work it's doing um, for me in this book. At least that's that's what I remember it doing. <laughs> Thank you so much. I just wanted to kind of highlight that because, again, I love um, what that source is doing in this book. So as we kind of move toward the epilogue, we won't have to. Uh, too much time to talk about chapter seven on opportunity and failure, but I just want to mark this for listeners um, because this is a chapter uh, exploring tensions between opportunity and failure for educated youth participation in this scientific experiment movement. But I want to just flag this especially because this is um, one of the places where there are really, really interesting conversations about gender um, and issues of gender and the scientific experiment movement. And so among the things that are considered here, at least for my perspective as a reader um, are, you know, what did opportunity mean differentially if you were a woman or a girl um, versus a man or a boy, right? And so um, readers who are particularly interested in these issues will find this elsewhere in the book as well, but will find it taking on particular resonance here in chapter seven. Um, And also failure. Failure didn't just mean um, an experience of, oh, well, I'll just buck up and keep going. That didn't work, but something else will. There's some really heart wrenching actually moments in this chapter. I'm thinking especially of a moment um, when you relate the story of Yewa and um, the mother of uh, Flying Bird. Um, so mm-hmm. listeners can look that up in chapter seven where failure doesn't just mean, oh, well, failure can mean a sense of profound um, responsibility and loss um, actually for, you know, for something that you've done that didn't work. And so what constitutes failure and how failure is experienced in practice um, is very, very um, complex and very, I think, effectively uh, powerful here in this part of the book. 
Yes, thank you. This um, you've you know hit on a couple of the points and the story, the Yewa's story was is really in many ways the most significant for me, um, both in terms of the research process and in terms of the book um, itself. It's the it's the one it's the place that I um, that I catch every time you know, and I when I did the proofing or whatever, that's like the moment where I stop and really think about the big significance. Um, but just to, to talk about opportunity first. Um, Yes. Um, you know, so the, the scientific experiment movement did constitute an opportunity for all sorts of people, especially rural youth. And, you know, that is in some ways what makes it so poignant for those um, people who participated in it and then it didn't go anywhere. And then they ended up just kind of back in their villages forever, never getting a chance to go to college, never getting a chance to really um, be anything but a, but a regular peasant for the, for the rest of their lives. And then some, for some people, it did. It opened the door for rural youth to um, become um, more often technicians than scientists, but nonetheless to, um, to enter a world that they saw as noble and important and interesting. Um, and then for, you know, for girls in particular, you know, this, the, this was a, a major emphasis in the Mao era, in part symbolically, because it meant that, you know, you know, because old China was portrayed as, you know, nothing if not um, patriarchal, then overcoming ideas of, of patriarchy, ideas that, you know, women can't do this because they're women, women can't participate in science, women uh, can't contribute to scientific knowledge. If you can, you know, talk about a, um, a scientific experiment movement as overcoming those ideas, then that's a real triumph for socialism. It's a real, um, it's a real win. And so, um, so that's, that's there a lot in the propaganda. And I think, you know, it was there also, you know, in fact, that women did get uh, to participate in this um, in ways that, um that felt um, revolutionary. Um, and, uh, you know, nonetheless, I also kind of show that, uh, you know, and it came out, you know, when I was out doing the interviews, almost every single person I got to interview was a man. And there are all sorts of interesting reasons why that could be. But one of those reasons is that often women didn't go forward in agricultural science, um, you know, because it wasn't necessarily seen as the most appropriate route for them. And in particular, after the, um, you know, kind of after the revolutionary heyday was was over. Uh, but in terms of failure, um, this is something I, you know, I have really wrestled with in, in a bunch of um, in, in a kind of bunch of different aspects. But the the story, uh, um, Yewa's story that she shared with me um, was so um, was so powerful. I will just um, kind of share it as best I can here. Um, she was an educated youth um, sent down from the uh, from the uh, urban areas to the um, from Beijing to the um, countryside, and she was in a very poor village. Um, she was. Um, uh, when when the call came, you know, who wants to go to the county seat and um, learn something about scientific experiment and, and come back and use it in the village? She said, absolutely, I'll go. That sounds, you know, that sounds fun. So she she went and she um, in particular, she learned a couple of different um, techniques, uh, one of which was um, how to grow this new um, uh, hybrid sorghum. And she brought these um, seeds back to the uh, to the village and the villagers um, gave her this plot um, and uh, 
you know, let her plant the sorghum seeds there. They gave her, you know, the best plot of land because they wanted to be supportive of her endeavor and to wanted to support scientific experiment and support Yewa, support this, you know, educated youth. Um, and uh, she um, planted the seeds and it really didn't do well. You know, I mean, it didn't fail utterly, but it didn't do nearly as well as just the kind of an, an ordinary um, uh, crop would have done on that precious piece of land. And so she felt this, you know, she experienced tremendous shame because of this. She couldn't even, you know, be in the village when harvest time came because she could see the writing on the wall and she just couldn't even be there. Um, but when she got back to the village, she um, found that the, the peasants had very dutifully collected, you know, the best seeds from that plot and hung them uh, up to, you know, to preserve them for the next planting, you know, that that is how um, seriously they took the work and how much trust they put in her. But what made this so, you know, what I, I took this story and I really had to see it in the context of another story she told me, um, which was about a time when as the leader of the women's group in the village, she um, was supposed to lead out a um, kind of group of women out to um, to do some some agricultural labor. Um, and she uh, was was walking out there with the other women when um, one of the women in the group who was kind of walking on ahead came back and said, we are not doing this. We're turning around, going home. We're not doing it. We're not doing it. We're not doing it. And she said, you know, what are you talking about? We're not doing it. We have to do it. Um, and she said, we're not doing it. That's it. And what, yeah, what I realized was that the woman had come across the body of a young child who had died um, a, a, a short time before um, uh, because the village had gone through such a, a hungry period um, and the um, she had been ill and with the shortage of food and um, medicine had not survived and um, the everybody was so kind of weak and discombobulated that the person who was assigned the job of going and, and burying this child had really just kind of made it only a short way out of the village and had um, had dumped the body in a ditch rather Rather than doing a proper burial, um, and this was, um, you know, this was what they had encountered. And the woman, who's you know, who's the mother of this child, was in the group that was going out to do this agricultural work. And so this other woman had said, you know, absolutely, we're not going any farther. We're turning around right now, you know, because she didn't want them to encounter, didn't want the mother to have to encounter her her daughter's body. And so for me, you know, putting these these stories together, just thinking about what failure meant, you know, I mean, it's all well and good for the propaganda to say, oh, science is a winding road and oh, failure is the mother of success. And, you know, um, this is a great learning experience for the educated youth. They try something out, it fails, you know, um, and then they learn something. And this is, you know, a great revolutionary triumph, you know, that failure is a revolutionary triumph or something, you know, that, um, you know, is put in a whole new light when um, the consequences of failure are so stark and so obvious. And of course, you know, to think that these are people who had experienced a famine not that many years before, right? Very few years before, a famine that had taken the lives of tens of millions of people across the the country, um, and that in on a more local level, this you know this these experiences were so tremendously profound that failure could not just be written off as some kind of you know educational opportunity for for educated youth. So that's that's one big point I want to make about failure. But the other big point that I really feel like I need to make about failure is to um, 
contest or challenge the idea that we should just kind of write off the Mao, you know, Mao era radicalism and particularly um, Mao era radical approaches to science is just some kind of great failure, just a colossal failure um, and something that, you know, it's just so obvious in retrospect that, um, you know, politically, um, uh, explicitly political uh, approaches uh, to science are, are obviously wrong um, and that, you know, we can just kind of, um, you know, kind of laugh at how many of these um, experiments turned out to be failures. And what I ask people to do at the end of that um, at, of that chapter, and I realize it's provocative and it might um, make some people irritated, but what I ask people to do is to say, like, let's imagine, you know, 50 years from now, the um, U.S. Um, kind of political economy collapses and um, is replaced by some kind of new order. And people, you know, historians of that period are looking back on our period and writing the history of 4-H, our, you know, youth youth agriculture um, organization are, you know, would, would we just write it off as failure because so much of, um, you know, what went on didn't really work out or what have you, or would we say that it was obviously going to be a failure, obviously politically motivated because it, you know, 4-H, because of 4-H's ties to, um, to pesticide corporations or other kind of um, agricultural corporations um, or because, you know, 4-H has been involved in, you know, questions um, international activities tied to the U.S.'s geopolitical ambitions. I mean, w- would we just dismiss the history of 4-H because, because of that? No, I think we shouldn't, right? I think we should try to understand what it meant to the people who participated and what it has meant to the people who participated um, is all sorts of things, you know, all, all sorts of things, rich opportunities and also um you know, uh, sometimes bitter failures, perhaps, um, but that that really w- what we need to do um, similarly for socialist era um, Chinese agricultural science is try to understand what this meant to the people uh, who experienced it and not write it all off as obviously flawed from the outset and not worth even thinking about. Great. So, Sigrid, we're, we're pretty much um, at the end of our time and moving toward the conclusion, but there's this fabulous epilogue in the book, and if you don't mind, can we talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, let's do that, and really just briefly. Um, so the epilogue considers the legacies and also the lasting significance of the history of scientific farming for today and also for possible futures as we move forward. There are a number of case studies that you introduce here in the epilogue that really embody experiences where um, you report or you write here about uh, feeling resonances between um, Maoist era cases, uh, material that we've talked about um, already in the course of the book, um, and what you experienced actually in person on the ground. You talk about uh, cases of model villages that you were brought to visit. You talk about the food sovereignty movement in China. And you also talk about the part- a participatory plant breeding project in maize growing villages in Guangxi. So perhaps let's um, talk a little bit about this latter example of the plant breeding pot project. Can you briefly for us kind of take us into what you feel here are some of the resonances between what you experienced um, when visiting this plant breeding project and uh, what we've discussed in the book and what's important perhaps as a kind of final word um, before we move to our conclusion about those resonances. Like why are those resonances significant for us to understand, mark, and take seriously? 
Um, thank you. Yes, I, I definitely wanted to get to this. So I appreciate that. Um, the participatory plant breeding project um, is a is the example from the epilogue that I am really most moved by. Um, this is a group of um, social scientists and agricultural experts um, in Guangxi who are um, attempting to use a kind of participatory action research frame to uh, encourage uh, peasants to interact with um, agricultural technicians and social scientists and really encouraging the agricultural technicians and the social scientists to value um, peasant contributions uh, to plant breeding. And in their um, writings, we do what we do not see are um, explicit invocations of um, of the Mao era. Rather, you know, they're more likely to say, boy, everything was really top down um, in the Mao era. And what we want to do is something very different, which is kind of bottom up um, participatory uh, plant breeding. So they want to encourage peasants to share their um, own networks, how they exchange seeds and really have agricultural technicians value and honor that work. So there's no real invocation of the of, of Maoism, and yet the references. I mean, it just sounds so um, clearly influenced um, by Maoist perspectives on um, agricultural knowledge. So insisting that uh, scientists respect peasant knowledge, that they get out of their ivory towers, that they um, encourage women in particular um, to participate. So much of this um, is uh, and encourage self-reliance. So self-reliance is another big theme here. Um, uh, so much of this is so deeply resonant with the, uh, with the Mao era that um, I am just left with this question, um, both, you know, why is it that it's not more explicitly invoked? And, you know, what do we lose when we fail to invoke it? And so for me, um, you know, I see a lot of what is going on with the kind of most um, cutting edge, most um, exciting uh, movements in um, food and agriculture to be very much informed by um not just a similar politics as what we saw in socialist era China, but actually, a, you know, a legacy um, from when people were, in fact, influenced by and proudly influenced by uh, the example being set in socialist era China. So for all of its, you know, flaws and all of its failures, it nonetheless, you know, profoundly inspired a lot of people. And I would say continues to inspire us today. But in order to really um, appreciate that and kind of take what, um, you know, what is valuable. I think it's important to, to do so consciously and with a um, real historical understanding of what this legacy is. Great. So Sigrid, thank you so much um, for taking so much time to talk with us about the book. Um, so obviously, I think it's been clear throughout, there's a ton of material that we didn't have a chance to talk about. It's an extraordinarily rich study. But given that, is there anything in particular that didn't come up but that you'd like to mention for, uh, or that you feel is important to get on the table for our listeners? It, maybe just a couple things. Maybe one thing, especially for those who are um, thinking a lot about the current kind of politics of, of agriculture and agricultural science. One of the things that um, has been most concerning for people um, who have been skeptical or, um, you know, in opposition to um, uh, 
uh, GMOs and um, also hybrid um, seed technologies is the way in which they prevent local people from uh, maintaining control over uh, seed selection, um, but and instead kind of place farmers at the mercy of major corporations, which they, they have to keep going back to those corporations for seeds. They're not kind of able to save seeds um, with these with these new technologies. And I wanted to highlight, you know, for people who are interested in that subject, the Mao era um, offered this, albeit brief, um, but this kind of interesting counterexample. Um, so it's just that once hybrid rice um, had been developed, there is this short window after it's developed and before um, the political economy rad- radically transforms in China, where the model was not for um, seed production to be centralized, but rather for it to continue to happen at the grassroots. And so the state actually mobilized um, mostly um, rural youth um, to be uh, technicians who would, uh, they would get trained and they would come back to their villages and learn how to produce these seeds um, locally. And so for, you know, whatever other um, concerns that people have about um, such technologies, it's interesting to see that it's not necessarily the case that such a technology would have to be pursued within the context of corporate um, and a top-down kind of uh, um, agricultural model, but rather there was this this other alternative. So I would just kind of point people in that direction if that's an issue. And I know it's an issue that's on the front burner for a lot of people today. Um, And then, you know, the second thing, I guess I would just say um, there had been um, two chapters in this book that had to be cut because it was just too long. Um, And those uh, uh, involved looking at the experience of Westerners who traveled to China particularly in the 1970s um, and who came back with, uh, you know, stories of what they had seen, mostly extremely flattering. Um, And people, these people, you know, some of them um, committed leftists and some much more kind of mainstream type scientists. Um, And that is a a facet of this history that still kind of pops up periodically in the book. I managed to weave it in in a few places, um, but but some of that um, material uh, was cut and I hope to um, pursue in other ways. But it was really, um, uh, in particular, some interviews that I did with um, members, former members of an organization from the 1970s and 1980s um, in the U.S. called Science for the People, who went early on, um, you know, went in 73 to China, you know, very early in the whole process. Um, And they had gotten that invitation because of their political commitments. Um, They um, went and interviewed all of these people and came back and wrote this book that's on a lot of our shelves. Um, But I, you know, went back and actually interviewed some of the people because I was so interested by uh, in it. It's called uh, China Science Walks on Two Legs. Um, A very flattering portrayal and something that I think inspired a lot of people on this side to think that there was an alternative um, to science as it was practiced under corporate capitalism and imperialism uh, in the U.S. So so many people, I think, um, really saw China as a model then. And that is part of, you know, why I feel like we continue to um, go back and, and understand what that model was all about. And it was really um, the interview with one, an interview with one of those um, members of Science for the People that led me to Pujolong as well, because he said, you know, if you're interested in this stuff, you should go and try and find out more about this entomologist Pujolong, because of all the people we interviewed, this guy was the most sincere, the most committed, you know, the most kind of clearly, um, 
really doing um, this um, two science. He didn't say two science, but, you know, this math science um, that um, that you seem to be so interested in. Um, so I just wanted to kind of give a little um, credit um, there. I, I, there's lots of people I would love to give credit to, but I did feel, um, especially since I ended up cutting the chapter about them, um, that I wanted to recognize the um, very um, formative role that these conversations with the um, former members of this organization played in helping me figure out what were the big questions uh, that I needed to be asking in this book. So Sigrid, now that the book is out and congratulations um, on the book, I think it's fabulous. I hope that's completely obvious. What's next for you? What are you currently thinking about and working on? Um, well, there are a few projects that I um, kind of, you know, I've, I've got going. Um, one of them is a, um, I'm giving a paper in a couple of weeks on the story of the Albanian olive tree in China. So kind of pursuing this, um, this, uh, you know, it's, uh, agricultural science and socialist China in transnational context. Um, this summer, I'll be um, with two other co-editors, um, be putting uh, the final touches on a volume we're really excited about. It's actually a volume of um, primary sources related to the Science for the People movement. So not China, but specifically the Science for the People movement. There will be a few pieces about their um, relation, you know, their involvement or their uh, trip to China. Um, but so that I'm. I'm really looking forward to that. And that's for, you know, a volume intended for the classroom and also we hope for political study groups, that kind of thing. Um, so doing that. And um, then I'm just in this kind of, I think, really luxurious position right now, just of being able to take a step back and, you know, kind of think about what's next and, and a little bit um, not be so um, kind of forceful and pushing it in one direction or another, but kind of seeing what happens Um I've been um, really um, inspired by the work of Alex Day and Mindy Schneider, um, who are both working on um, issues related to peasants and um, agriculture um, in, um, in more recent times. And, uh, you know, I'm uh, looking forward to conversations with them and, um, you know, interested in seeing where how they can inspire me to figure out um, what the next steps I should take are and how to kind of link, you know, what I've looked at with um, some of the questions that other people um, are pursuing. And then in October, I'm going to um, go to China and um, reconnect with this um, his, historian of agriculture, Cao Xingxue, who I mentioned before and who uh, was so helpful to me in the, um, in the interview, uh, in organizing interviews for me. Um, and he's eager um, to go around um, with me again and said, you know, absolutely, just show up and we'll, we'll go out. And uh, so I'm, I'm really curious as to what, what he's interested in. Um, and I would kind of like to um, to um, hear more from him about um, what you know what he sees as the kind of interesting stuff going on and interesting um, places to places to go. So I feel like I'm in a, a fun position now, just to a little bit kind of see where things uh, take me. But I will be sticking with um, with agricultural science for the um, foreseeable future because it's clearly just a, a really um, important area and one where um, one book won't cover it, that's for sure. Well, best of luck with that work, Sigrid. Thanks for taking time away from that to talk with me today. It's been a pleasure and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much, Carla. Again, I just really appreciate everything you're doing for um, both STS and um, Chinese studies. It's just um, you're, you do really important work and I'm just honored to um, you know, be, be a part of that. Thank you. 
You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies and New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks very much for joining us here at the podcasts, and we hope you'll come back soon.